Revelation 12, the woman and the dragon. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now I have come to the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male. The woman was given the two wings of great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, out of the snake's reach. Then from his mouth, the snake spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Thank you, Becky. Morning, everyone. Good to see you. Have you ever wondered why it is so hard to live as a Christian? Perhaps some of you kind of wonder that most of the time, you think. Now, when you think about it, as Christians, we have the promises of eternal life. We have freedom in Christ. We have power over sin. We know the God who made us and who loves us. And so all of these things, you just think, kind of raise your expectations for what the Christian life is going to look like. It's going to be victory and glorious and brilliant and wonderful, and yet it can feel, can't it? And in fact, it really is really, really tough. Why is that? Revelation 12 is this short play with these three main characters set on the stage of heaven, which helps explain a big reason why Christian life is so tough. 
Now, as with most of Revelation, those of you who have been here a few weeks are probably seeing this. Revelation isn't given us nice, easy, quick, digestible kind of take-home lessons. Just like, do this in your life, and it's, it's really kind of straightforward and easy to process. What Revelation is doing, it's doing something different. It's given us new spiritual eyes. It's, it's, it's given us a, a vision to reorientate our whole approach to life and to the world in light of what we see. Revelation 12 is pretty similar. It's not nice, easy take-homes, but it gives us a new vision of life and of the world. You see, as Christians, our battle, we read in the Bible, is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Revelation 12 shows us what that looks like. In fact, Revelation 12 through 14 uh, reveals uh, the true nature of this spiritual battle to us. And... um, and uh, it helps us get to grips with these spiritual forces and how they w- operate and how they work and, and what they like. And, and so today we're starting one of these new cycles of seven. We've done a couple over the last few weeks. Um, but this time it's in a slightly different form. So today we start uh, this cycle of seven and we're introduced to these seven characters over the coming few weeks, which John sees. Uh, and uh, he has a series of visions of these characters and sometimes he calls them signs. Uh, and today we get the first two. So we're slowing it down a little bit because we're going to explore this next cycle of seven over, I think, the next three weeks in chapters 12 through 14. And as we do that, they'll take us deeper into the spiritual dimension of, of the spiritual conflict between the church and the world. You, you might have heard Christian say, or you might even have been thinking it yourself lately. Uh, I heard someone say this recently. Um, keep, keep away from Revelation because it's scary. Keep, you know, it's a, it's a scary book, so, so best, not, best not go there. And we have seen, haven't we, it is like a horror film. And, and, and therefore, in some senses, it is scary because it's very realistic about the horrors of life. But really, we shouldn't be scared and we shouldn't keep away. Because it's clear who wins in the end. And that always makes a massive difference, doesn't it, to a film and how you watch a film. And what Revelation does is it builds our confidence as Christians in that victory and therefore helps us to persevere and to endure and to keep going, waiting for that victory in the end. So today, from Revelation 12, we've got three perspectives from heaven on the spiritual warfare that we see in the world. So here's our first perspective. It's a heavenly perspective on the work of Christ in the world. A heavenly perspective on the work of Christ in the world. The nativity story is, is well known and, uh, and well loved by us all, isn't it? And we're going to be at Christmas soon. Uh, and when it rolls around, we'll all get very cute and very nostalgic. And the kids will get dressed up as Mary and Joseph. And Angel Gabriel might sing the solo. And the shepherds and the wise men act their parts. And then, and then we sing carols like silent night, holy night. All is calm and all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace, ooh, ooh, ooh. It's so nice, isn't it? And so peaceful, so beautiful. Well, here in Revelation 12, we have the same story told. We were told about the birth of Christ, but if you like, this is the 18-rated Christmas nativity, okay? That's how you've got to see it. This is the baby mama and the big red dragon, and none of the gore is taken out of, uh, photoshopped out of this story. Yeah, you've got this heavenly, pre- heavily pregnant woman crying out in the pain of childbirth, which we don't often get in our, in our nativity scenes for good reason, with this no one standing by other than this enormous red dragon there, hungry, ready to devour the child as, as soon as the child is born. 
This is heaven's perspective of what we celebrate at Christmas. It's not about a miracle baby that doesn't cry. It's not about animals gently standing by, kind of ooing and cooing over this baby. No, this is a great fight between a fierce dragon and this male child, this baby. Now, in a fight, in this war, as this scene unfolds, who is going to win this fight? It's, it's, It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? We're going to come back to the mother and the dragon in a moment. But for now, let's just focus on this son. Because as we read, it's not just any baby boy that's been born here. In verse 5, we're told this is the one who will rule all of the nations with an iron scepter. Becky read uh, Psalm 2 at the the beginning uh, this morning to us. This is a quote from Psalm 2. This is God's king, the promised one who will rule over all and who in the end all will bow before, all will acknowledge as king. In verse 10 of Revelation 12, we read that this is the Messiah, or the translation of that is the Christ. It means he's God's chosen one, the one who God has appointed to be over all things. And so this is the one who Psalm 2 told us, the nations rally against. The nations rise up against and oppose in their rejection of God. And so that's why the welcome party for this baby's birth is an angry dragon, ready to rip him to shreds. Licking his lips, poised and ready, that baby is coming and I'm going to devour him. But as the dragon grabs at the child as he is born, in verse 5, what happens? He's whisked away and snatched up to heaven and to the throne of God. See, this is a a creative retelling, really, of the whole uh, of the life uh, of Christ at his first coming. It's the story of Christ being kept safe from this dragon, and so ultimately we see in the end overcoming him. And so in verse 5, you've got really the whole whole life story of Christ condensed into a little verse. This baby was born to rule the nations, the dragon failed to devour him, and so he was snatched up to God's throne in heaven. This has given us that heavenly insight into what's going on in in that story, the heavenly realities behind the birth, life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ to heaven. This is this new perspective. The life story of Christ is one of being kept safe from the dragon, and so in the end overcoming him and going back to heaven. Now, in practice, if we filled out that story like we can from what we know in the Bible, we know what it looked like. It looked like that when Jesus was born, he had a death sentence on his head straight away. Herod was there trying to kill all of those baby boys born in that part of the world from Jesus' background at that time. But Jesus was protected from that, whisked away to safety in Egypt, and and he didn't get killed in those early years. This looked like Joseph raising Jesus as his own son, and in his infancy and in his young years, protecting him and safeguarding him until Joseph himself died, but keeping him under his care. We see it in the temptation of Christ as he starts his ministry as Satan comes and attacks and is, and is on, on, on the attack there, seeking to devour him again and trip him up. And yet Christ resists and stands firm and is protected from the attack of Satan and overcomes. It looked like from that point on, Jesus having a permanent death sentence over his head. Time and time again, we read of plot and counterplot to kill him and, and to get him and to to get rid of him. And again and again, he escapes the worldly and the religious powers that are trying to get him. Again and again, he seems to miraculously 
just get out of the dragon's grasp as the dragon snatches at him. In the end, this did look like Jesus, according to his own timing and according to the plan of his father, allowing one of those plots to succeed. As he submitted himself to death, he wasn't kept safe from it in the end, but offered himself up on the cross. And it looked like Jesus staying on the cross, when at any moment he could have taken himself down, he could have called the legion of heaven's angels as they accused him of of not being able to do, and they would have come to his aid and delivered him. His father could have stopped it at any moment, but his father did not intervene to rescue his beloved son from death. You see, no one takes his life from him, this male child. No one and nothing devours him. But he gives it up of his own accords. And that's what he did. And it was only after he had completed all of that, after he had died and he was raised, and then he was finally ascended up to heaven, that's when he was snatched up to the throne of God and to heaven. You see, so often people look to Christ's life, to his ministry and his death, and we know the story of what happened to him broadly, and and we think that he was defeated by his enemies. We think Satan won in some way. But that isn't the case. Now, he was kept safe through it. He was always safe in the plan and the purposes of God, and so he has triumphed over this dragon, and he is And the glorious reality at the heart of the good news is that the one who will rule the nations achieved that victory, achieved that overcoming by submitting himself to death for us. See, this is a heavenly perspective on the work of Christ in the world, on on his life and his work. It's a glorious and a faith-building perspective. The second heavenly perspective we get this morning of the three is a heavenly perspective on the work of Satan in the world. Heavenly perspective on the work of Satan in the world. You see, Satan has been defeated, but he is not yet finally dead. Not yet finally dead. And so what Revelation 12 shows us is that he will do all he can to get after you and at you if you are a Christian. He will do everything he can. So far in Revelation, we've seen some brief um, like allusions to uh, Satan. We've seen a little bit of his work, but now he comes front and center onto the stage in, 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 this, uh, in, in Revelation 12 as he's on the, uh, the attack against the inhabitants of heaven who are living on earth. Last week, we saw him afflicting the inhabitants of earth. Now he's at the church, the inhabitants of heaven living on earth. And you know, when we think of Satan, when we think of the devil... Very often the the image that pops into our mind is that little cartoony kind of red devil with red suit and tail and pitchfork and, you know, we've seen him in all sorts of cartoons and films and stuff and it's all very comical, isn't it? He's like the panto villain, the little devil there, you know, whispering in your ear. And so generally we think there's nothing too serious, nothing too much to worry about. Don't need to be too concerned about him. Well, listen, he is nothing of the sort. Do you see how he's depicted here, verse 3, as he steps onto the scene? He's this enormous red dragon. He's got seven heads with these seven crowns on these heads. We read that he's got these ten horns. He's got this great tail that sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky. And he wages war against the church and against the people of God. 
We're told in verse 9 exactly who this dragon is. I mean, I've already said it, but it's very explicit. Uh, The dragon is the devil or Satan. He's also called a snake or or the serpent throughout this chapter and indeed throughout the whole Bible. And and we get this terrifying perspective in in Revelation 12 of Satan and of his work. And and really there's three things, the key things for us to see uh, as we we look at it. And the first one is he makes a great claims to authority and power. This is what we see in this many-headed monster with these seven heads and these seven crowns. That's kind of a claim to this complete and total power and authority, a crown of of someone who rules. And then his ten thorns are another claim to power. It's still today, isn't it? The the, the horn in the animal kingdom is a display of strength and and power. And so that imagery is, is at work in the Bible. Ten horns is saying he's making these great boasts and claims to power. And we're going to see more next week, actually, as we really dig into this. But he so often pursues this claim to power and authority through political empires and political structures in the world. And so it is through this false and boastful claim to complete and sovereign power over all things that Satan leads the whole world astray. That's what it says here. He deceives people who have been made in God's image, made for for relationship with God and the joy uh, of knowing him. He deceives them into rebelling against the God who made all things, the God who loves them. And he does it through these power plays and, and, and this authority and stuff. We're going we're to see it a bit more in future weeks, so, but we just see it introduced here. The, the second thing we see about Satan's work in verse 10 is this, that he accuses the brothers and sisters before God day and night. So he not only leads astray by tempting people into sinful rebellion against God, but when he succeeds in that with you, dear Christian, you can be sure the very next voice you're going to hear is going to be the voice of Satan accusing you, condemning you. He's tempted you and led you astray, and then he comes straight in with the accusation. In fact, do you see what it says in verse 10? His accusations about us are made to God. God, look at him. Can you believe he's done it again? How many times have you been gracious with him, God? Are you sure he's one of your people? God, surely this is one time too many. Surely you can't put up with this anymore. Aren't you going to cut him adrift? God, do you really want to be associated with her? After what she's done? Are you going to accept him this dirty and just be fine with that, God? And on and on and on. Accusations before God about you and me. Except, do you see what verse 10 says? Listen to this great promise. The one who seeks to accuse you before God day and night has been hurled down from heaven to earth. He has been hurled down. He no longer has any rights of access to the court of heaven. His rights have been revoked. His activity of accusing us us before God is now shut out and there's nothing that he can do about it. Listen, if you are a Christian, the prosecution counsel the lawyer coming at you with all of those accusations and all of those charges. 
the only one who can bring a claim against you has been thrown out of court by your judge. Been thrown out. And do you know who's left standing in the heavenly court for you? It's your defense lawyer. It's your counsel. It's Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who has a right to stand before the judge and speak on your behalf. And he stands there defending you, forgiving you, and covering for you. What this means to the Christian is that God is not listening to Satan's accusations about you. You could say they fall on deaf ears. But here's the question. Are you listening to them? God has shut out the voice of Satan. But have we? See, this is when we discover if we believe, and the extent to which we really believe this gospel, this good news of Jesus. Where and what do you turn to when you have royally messed up? Whose voice do you listen to then? Who are we believing? What are we reminding ourselves about our great failings and our many sins of this week, let alone of years and years and years ago that just haunt us and plague us? Those memories and those regrets which hound us to this day. Who are we listening to about them? Who are we believing? Listen, this is where the awesome news of Christ's forgiveness, of Christ's freedom, of Christ's cross, of his righteous perfection which is given to you if you're a Christian, of the depth and the power of his cross that can wipe even the the vilest clean, of the freedom that we have in Christ. This is where it hits the road, where we see just how bad we are. Is your gospel big enough? And is it bold enough? for your sin and for your failings. Satan would convince you it isn't with his accusations, with his lies. But Jesus gave his life for you and he stands in your defense. And he has God's ear, not Satan. Listen, if some of you will be sitting here and you'll know that today... (laughs) You'll be like, yes, I agree with you, Johnny, and I believe it, but, but if I'm honest, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to Satan. I'm hearing his lies. I'm hearing his accusations. If that's you, please tell someone today. Please just ask someone to pray for you. Please don't just think, yeah, just don't ignore that or let that moment go. You have a chance to do that later, later on as we're, as we're worshiping together. There'll be a chance to come to the back for some prayer about that or just to a friend over coffee, someone here, just whatever, just... Share that with someone and ask them to pray. Here's the third thing that we see about Satan in Revelation 12. He is filled with furious anger because he knows he's defeated. It's this uh, this famous piece of military history that in World War II, some of the most brutal and some of the most severe fighting came right at the end of the war when the overall victory was, was totally assured for the Allies and, and the Nazis were, 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 and the Axis forces were going to be defeated, and yet that's when the worst and the most brutal fighting happened. Hitler and his army even invented these new rocket missiles at this point to seek to cause the maximum destruction they could, to seek to cause the most chaos and carnage. They kind of went down swinging, basically. 
And there's an old saying, isn't there? There's nothing more dangerous than a wounded animal. Sports teams say it all the time when one team's coming off a loss. And it's absolutely true. And it goes the same for Satan. He seeks to devour Christ, but he's unsuccessful and he's defeated. And in verse 7, we read that he, he's not strong enough and, and the rebellion that he starts in heaven is overcome and defeated and overpowered and so um, by the angels and representatives of God and so Satan and the evil angels are, 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 have lost their place in heaven and are cast down to earth. Uh, and so therefore the heavenly warfare that Satan started in heaven kind of spills out onto the earth. And so Satan, who couldn't defeat Christ, is in an absolute rage and so he goes after the rest of Christ's family. He pursues the woman, the people of God, in verse 13, we see. And then in verse 17, we read that he's waging war against her offspring, which is individual Christians. And so the Bible tells us that now today, Satan is is, is a real uh, person, a real being, who is roaming the earth like a roaring lion. And he's looking for weak and looking for vulnerable Christians to pick off. He's tearing into the church. Uh, And he does it in two ways, basically. We see it kind of implied in verse 17 about how we overcome him. The two ways that he's ripping into Christians. He wants us to deny Jesus and how we live. Tempting us not to keep God's commands. It's a matter of our lifestyle and how we live in our lives. And the second way, he wants us to deny Jesus by what we believe. And what we say is true. So not hold fast to our testimony about Jesus. And this is then a matter of of faith and doubt and belief. (coughs) And so these battles for, for truth and belief and for godly living in our lives as Christians and in our church family that are waging at the moment. This is the warfare, and we're on the front line. We can be sure that there is, that is where Satan is tearing into us and having a go. And listen, I've had conversation after conversation this week that have shown me that that's true in our church. And so we are to be on our guards and we're to watch out for these dangers. We know how he's going to attack. We know where he's coming. Because this is how Satan always goes after Christians. It's how he always has. It shouldn't surprise us. This ancient snake has no new tricks in the book. All he does is dresses up his old tricks in some modern garb in a new day and a new age. But he comes exactly the same way. And so listen, if right now you're particularly struggling in a profound way with either living the Christian life or believing Christian truth, which I know in some senses we all are all the time to some degree, but for some that's particularly pronounced at this time. But will you see it as an attack of this wicked and this terrible and this horrible and this fearsome dragon who, though defeated, is going about causing as much destruction and mayhem and calamity as he possibly can in your life. (coughs) Listen, verse 12 tells us, he is filled with fury because his time is short. He knows his time is short. His time of rage is limited by God, but he's going down swinging. And he's coming at us. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And and at least if we can call out his work for what it is, and we can start to spot it and score it in one another's lives when we see it happening, well, it's the start of knowing how to respond. 
And that leads us to our vital third perspective from heaven. And it is this. A heavenly perspective on the work of the church in the world. A heavenly perspective on the work of the church in the world. First Christ, then Satan, now the church. See, we do need, I think, a healthy fear of this terrible dragon. He is fearsome and horrible and terrifying, this destructive snake. But what we need more importantly to see in Revelation 12 uh, and, uh, and to know is that you too, as a Christian, can and will overcome him. So although we need to be aware of him, we, we, we need not ultimately be scared because we will triumph over him. There's a whole, whole load of, of movies like, um, I don't know them so well, but I'm told the Transformer movies like this, I know, know some of the Marvel films are, where as, as the, at the beginning of the film, you, you meet the bad guys, and you see what they're doing, and, or you meet the monsters, and they're massive, and they're bad, and they're scary, and they just seem unbeatable. And you normally got this kind of little group, or this, this one person, or a little group of, of good guys who just seem so weak and rubbish in comparison, and you think, they're never going to overcome them. And of course, the reason why we love those films is because always at the end, they do overcome them, and there's some great victory. And you'd think the same with the dragon and the little baby child, wouldn't you? And you'd think the same with the small little Christian, you of your stumbling, weak little faith and, and trying to work out life and this big, bad, serpent-like snake thing coming at you. You think, well, it's obvious, isn't it, who's going to win? But in the end, it's not even a contest. So Christians need not ultimately fear, for we are assured victory. We will overcome. And, and so this is why we turn our, our attention to the third main character in, in these scenes. And it's this beautiful woman that we're, we're introduced to at, right at the start in verse 1. And, and it's a radiant woman who is clothed with the sun, and she has the moon under her feet and this crown of 12 stars on her head. And it's this woman who brings forth this promised son. And then in verse 6, having given birth to this son, this woman flees to a place that's prepared for her by God, where he might take care of her. And then later on in verses 13 to 17, she's pursued and attacked by the dragon. But again, God protects her and cares for her. God gives her these eagle's wings, which are a vision in scripture of his protection and his care. And she flees to this place prepared for her to be cared for, to find refuge out of the snake's reach. Just, just, a, just a little kind of helpful point is in verse 6, this time of protection and care is 1,260 days. In verse 14, it's for a time, times, and half a time. Both of those are ways of talking about 3.5 years. We saw the meaning of 3.5 last week. It's a period of suffering for God's people, but a period that is limited and time-bound. In verse 17, we read, This is the woman whose offspring are those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. Who is this woman? Some think because of you know, the image of giving birth to Christ. This is Mary, the mother of Christ. And of course, she is included, but it's much bigger and much greater than her. This is the faithful people of God through history. This is the faithful people of God from whom the promised son comes, the promised seed who will overcome this dragon, this serpent, this snake. This is the true Israel. This is the church from whom one emerges to defeat Satan once and for all. And so this woman is you and it's me if we are in Christ. This is the people of God radiant in our beauty. 
This is the people of God with dominion and rule who are crowned with glory. This is the people of God who, according to verse 11, triumph. Triumph over Satan. And how do we do it? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and by not loving our lives so much that we would shrink from death. See, chapter 12 is in many ways the theological heart of the book of Revelation. And verse 11 is at the very center of this theological heart. And it tells us how to live faithfully for the coming king so that we can overcome and so we can endure. However Satan may attack us, however he may try to tempt us, to turn aside from God's commands, and for a time, and in particular ways, he may even succeed. However he may entice us, to not hold fast to the truth that has been handed down to us about Christ in his word. However, however uh, doubts may come for a season and besiege us and take hold of us and our faith may well shake, he ultimately will not succeed in the end. He cannot succeed in the end. For it is the power of the assurance that we have in Christ's blood which covers us and which holds us. It is our holding fast to the truth about Christ and it is our willingness to suffer even to death for that. It is our willingness to suffer for Christ and his cause that will lead us to triumph. See, this is the work of the church in the world. To stand firm. To stay on Christ. To maintain all of our hope and all of our faith in him and his sacrificial death for us, to keep banging on about Christ again and again and again and not stop talking about him to one another and to others around us and to suffer well for him and his kingdom. That's the work we're called to. And amidst that, and amidst the attack that will come and some of the suffering and persecution and the pain that will come, God will keep us. God will protect us. He will tend us and care for us. So we're not going to be overwhelmed by the flood of evil that this serpent spews out of his mouth at us. They will be kept safe from that ultimately. And we will overcome. Which is why one day we will sing the victory song of heaven here in the middle of this chapter. And even today, this can be our song in faith and hope. I'm going to finish by reading this little song from verses 10 to 12. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.